Chapter Eighteen of Trails End by George W. Ogden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A bondsman breathes easier. There was a little ripple, more of mirth than excitement or concern, in Ascalon next morning when it became known that Seth Craddock had kicked the hole in the burned corner of the calaboose and leaked out of it into the night. Let him go. It was as well that way as any, they said, since it relieved them at once of the charge of his keep and the trouble of disposing of him in the end. He never would come back to that town. Let him ravage in other parts of the world as he might. What the town had lost in notoriety by his going would be offset by the manner of his degradation, already written at length by the local correspondent of the Kansas City Times and sent on to be printed with a display heading in a prominent position in that paper and copied by other papers all over the land. Seth Craddock and his reign were behind the closed door of the past, through which he was not likely to kick a hole and emerge again, after his manner of going from the calaboose. That matter off the town's mind, it ranged itself along the shady side of the street to watch the present contest between the law and those who lived beyond it. Up to this point, it appeared that the law was going to have it according to its mandate. Peden made no attempt to open his place on the night following Craddock's deposition, the lesser lights following his virtuous example. But there was in this quiescent confidence, in this lull, almost threatening, something similar to the impertinent repression of an incorrigible child who yields to authority immediately above him, knowing that presently it will be overruled. Something was clouding up the break over Ascalon. The sleepiest in the town was aware of that. How much more keenly, then, was this charged atmosphere sensed and explored with the groping hand of trepidation by Rita Thayer, finely tuned as a virtuoso's violin. She knew something was hatching in that Satan's nest of iniquity that would result in an outbreak of defiance, but what form it would take, and when, she could not determine. Although friends tried to sound for her the bottom of this pit. Morgan knew it. All the scheme was as plain to him as the line of hitching racks around the square. They were waiting to gather force, when they meant to rise up and crush him, fling wide their doors, invite the outlawed of the world in, and proceed as in the past. All there was to be done was wait the uncovering of their hands. Meantime, there was a breathing spell between, a spell of pleasant hours in the little newspaper office, reading the exchanges, helping on the arrangement of such news as the town and country about it yielded, and having many good laugh over their bungling of the job, himself and the pretty brown-eyed editor, that was better for their bodies and souls than all the physics on druggist Gray's shelves, and not one line concerning Morgan's adventures appeared in the headlight during that time. In this manner Ascalon enjoyed as it might three days of peace out of this summer solstice. The drought was aggravating in its duration and growing hardships. Many families in town were without water, and obliged to carry it from the deep well in the public square. 
Numberless cattle were being driven to the loading pens for shipment to market weeks ahead of their day of doom, unfattened, unfit. The range was becoming a barren disaster threatened over that land with a torch in its blind striking hand. On the evening of this third day between sunset and twilight, Rita Thayer stopped Morgan as he was passing the headlight office at the beginning of his nightly patrol. She was disturbed by an agitation that she could not conceal. Her eyes stood wide, as if some passing terror had opened their windows. "'He shot at you, and you didn't tell me,' she said reproachfully, facing him just inside the door. "'Well, he isn't much of a shot,' Morgan told her, cheerful assurance in his words. I can assure you I was at no time in any danger. Oh, you didn't tell me, she said, her voice a little above a whisper, on her quick coming breath. It didn't amount to anything, Morgan discounted, wondering how she had heard of it. All that puzzled me was why the little rat did it. I never stepped in front of him anywhere. The woman in the tent, the rustler's wife, told me. She told me just a little while ago. Oh, if he... If he had hit you? The kids all came running out of the tent. I thought he'd hit one of them, Morgan said humorously, thinking only to calm her great agitation and quiet her friendly, if there could be no dearer interest, concern. It was Peden got him to do it, she declared. Peden? Why should Hutton go out and do that fella's gunning? Del Hutton's gambling the county's money. He killed Mr. Smith, because he charged him with it. Pa knows it. Pa's on his bond. And if he keeps on losing the county funds, there on Peden's game, we'll have to make it good. It will take everything we've got, if he keeps on. That's bad. That's mighty bad, Morgan said, deeply concerned, curiously awakened to the inner workings of things in Ascalon. Still, I don't see what connection I have in it, and why he'd want to take a shot at me on the quiet that way. He shoots from behind. He shot Mr. Smith in the back, and it was at night besides. Don't you see how it was? Peden must have bribed him to do it, promised to make good his losses, or something like that. Plain as a wagon track, Morgan said. I don't know why I ever got you into this tangle, she lamented. I don't know what made me so selfish and so blind. It's just one more little complication in Ascalon's sickness, he comforted her. It doesn't amount to beans. The poor little fool was so scared that morning he could hardly lift his gun. He'll never make another break. If I only thought he wouldn't, he's as treacherous as a snake. You can't tell where he's sneaking to bite you. Give it up, Mr. Morgan, won't you please? She turned to him suddenly, appealing with her eyes, with her wistful lips, with every line of her sympathetic, anxious face. Give it up, he repeated, her meaning not quite clear. The office, I mean, surely, as I coax you into taking it, I've got a right to ask you to give it up. You've done what you took the place to do. You've got Craddock out of it and away from here. Your work's done. You can quit now, with a good conscience, and no excuse to anybody. Why, said Morgan reflectively, I don't believe I could quit right now, Miss Rita. There's something more to come. It isn't quite finished yet. There's a great deal more to come. The end of all this fighting and killing and grinning treachery will never come, she said, in great bitterness. 
What's the use of one man putting his life against all this viciousness? There's no cure for the curse of Ascalon but time. Let it go, Mr. Morgan. I beg you to give it up. Morgan took the hand that she had reached out to him in her appeal. The great fervor of her earnest heart had drawn the blood away from it, leaving it cold. He clasped it tightly to warm it in his big palm, and spoke comfortingly, yet he would not, could not tell her that he would give over the office and leave the town to its devices. The work he had begun on her account, at her appeal, was not finished. He wanted to give her a piece that would make permanent the placidity of her eyes, such as warmed his heart during those three days. But he could not tell her that. If it goes on, she said, sad, that he would not yield to her appeal, you'll have to, you'll have to do what the rest of them have done. And I don't want you to do that, Mr. Morgan. I want you to keep clean. As it must be, so it will be, he said. But I don't see any reason why I can't keep on the way I've started. There's nobody doing any shooting here now. They're only waiting, she said. I'll have to watch them a little longer, then, he told her. Somebody might shoot your windows out. He led her away from the subject of Ascalon's danger and unrest, its sinister ferment and silent threat. But she would come back to it in a little while, and to Del Hutton, who shot men in the back. He's over there in the courthouse now. That's his office, where you see the light, trying to doctor up his books to hide his stealing. I know, she declared. Morgan left her, his rifle in his hand, to go on his patrol of the town according to his nightly program. As he tramped around the square, he watched the light in the courthouse window, thinking of the account on his own books against the old-faced young man who labored there, alone to hide his speculations for a little while longer. And so, watching and considering, thinking and devising, the night came down over him, guardian of the peace of Ascalon, where there was no peace. Rita Thayer, leaving the headlight office at nine o'clock, saw two men come down the courthouse steps, shadowy and indistinct in the dusk of starlight and early night. She paused on her way, wondering, and her wonder and mystification grew when she saw them cut across the square in the direction of Peden's dark and silent hall. One of them was Del Hutton, the other she had no need to name. When Dell Hutton, county treasurer, deposited $3,000 of the county's fund in the bank next morning, a certain man who stood surety on his bond wiped the sweat of vast relief from his forehead. And when Rita heard of it, she smiled, and the incense of gratitude rose out of her heart for the strong-handed man who had stopped this leak in the slender finances of the county a thing which he believed he was holding secret in the simplicity of his honest soul. End of chapter 18